If you'd like to turn to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, as Nathan will be preaching and teaching on this passage today. And just imagine if you are one of those receiving this letter directly from Paul in Colossae. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. Through him. May God bless the reading, the hearing, and the application of his word. You may be seated. Thank you, Mark. Join me in prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning grateful for the power of your word, and we're grateful for what Mark has read. And we ask that the word of Christ would dwell richly in us this morning. Father, I pray that you would help us to set aside whatever distractions may be demanding our attention just now, whatever details of life are drawing us away in our thoughts and in our hearts. And God, I pray that you would help us to be able to focus for the next few minutes on your word and that we would find hope as we look at this passage in Colossians. Father, I pray that you would help us to become more and more mature Christ followers as we allow the Word of God to dwell in our hearts and minds. And Father, help us to focus on what you have revealed about yourself and what that means for us in our lives. And God, we admit to you that we come to you this morning with all kinds of things racing through our hearts and minds. 
In fact, some of us may have feelings of anxiety and uncertainty as we've just begun a new school year and there are new assignments and new classes and new demands that are placed upon us. Others may be in a season of despair or even depression where they're wondering how their life is going to work out because it doesn't seem to be working out just now. And yet, God, there may also be people that are encouraged, that are excited, that have all the world before them, and everything seems to be going well. Father, we recognize in each of these situations, we can still be distracted, and we can crowd you out of our lives, whether it be through difficulties or whether it be through the delights that you provide in life. So help us this morning, I pray, to draw our, our attention to what you have said in your word about what it means to become a maturing Christian. And Father, I ask that you would transform us from the inside out, that you would take the truths of the gospel that you have brought into our lives, the truth that we are sinners who, are, who have been alienated from you, and the truth that we can repent of our sin and trust you for the forgiveness of our sin. Help us to zero in on these truths so that we can resist the vices of this world and embrace the virtues of heaven. And we ask this in Christ's glorious name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, as we are turning our attention to Colossians, we're taking just a little break from Genesis. And as we're looking in Colossians, I think what we're going to see here actually dovetails with some of the things we've been learning in Genesis. And that is, we will see how to become maturing, growing Christians through gospel transformation. In the Old Testament, they didn't have the gospel as clearly as we do, but they were growing in maturity as they depended on God day after day through difficult circumstances. We've seen Abram and Sarai now become Abraham and Sarah as they have continued to follow God through their own doubts and their own fears. And yet God is growing them through those doubts and fears to become great giants of faith. Though they wouldn't have described themselves as giants, they would describe themselves instead as struggling sinners. And as we are gathered here this morning, we also are struggling sinners. We are people who have to remind ourselves of our position in Jesus and remind ourselves that we actually belong here. Have you ever stepped into an environment where you felt completely out of place and you wondered, what in the world am I doing here? Why was I invited into this room with these people? I feel like a fish out of water. I do not belong. And yet perhaps with that invitation came the news that you, in fact, did belong. That perhaps you landed your dream job working at the company that you long to work for, and you're wondering, how did I get here? Am I smart enough to have this job to work with these people? How is this going to work out? Am I going to be discovered to be a fraud or unable to live up to the task? Perhaps it's a family gathering that you've been invited to, and you wonder, How am I going to fit here given all the tension and all the division in our family? How is this going to work out? Are they really going to accept me after all the things that have happened in our lives? And you may, again, have levels of anxiety wondering, how am I going to fit based on the dynamics of this family and these circumstances? 
Well, all of us, to one degree or another, feel levels of uncertainty about our place in the world and with other people, depending on what we're doing in different times. And in fact, I would say many of us at different times even struggle with our identity as followers of Jesus Christ. And we can struggle because of our sinfulness and our continued failures. And we honestly lie in bed awake at night asking, do I really fit in here? Do I really find acceptance in Jesus Christ and his gospel? I feel like such a failure. I'm such a fraud. I am so fake. And God counteracts all of those doubts and all of those fears with the power of Christ and the gospel. As we turn our attention to Colossians chapter 3, we see the Apostle Paul showing the believers at Colossae that they have indeed found acceptance in Jesus. And because they have this acceptance, he's exhorting them to grow in maturity through gospel transformation. And he is going to show them that the supremacy of Christ over all things that he laid out in chapter 1 and the sufficiency of Jesus that he talks about in chapter 2 will now come together in the way that people live with Jesus in their lives. In other words, the Apostle Paul is going to show us, as he showed the Colossian Christians, who we are in Christ and what we have in the gospel so that we know how to live in obedience to him. Let me say this again, that Paul is going to show us who we are in Christ and what we have in the gospel so that we will know how to live in obedience to Jesus. So far in the first two chapters of Colossians, Paul has laid out indicative statement after indicative statement, describing the fact of the gospel, the fact that we are sinners who needed a savior, the fact that Jesus has died for our sins and provided us the forgiveness of our sins. And the fact that Jesus has risen again from the dead, conquering death and sin. In light of all of those facts, now beginning in chapter 3, Paul is going to show us some imperative commands. In other words, based on what we know about Jesus, what difference does it make for our lives? The indicative facts of the gospel are what animate the imperative commands of the Christian life. And yet, so often we get this turned around and we get it backwards, and we think that being a Christian is following a certain set of rules or acting specific ways. But Paul, throughout his letters in the New Testament, makes it clear that the indicative facts of the gospel, if they're separated from the imperative commands, only produce knowledge without transformation. They produce people that have a lot of information and a lot of knowledge about God, but they don't live their lives for him. On the other hand, Paul also shows that the imperative commands, when they're taken away from the indicative statements, create graceless self-righteousness. Imperatives by themselves create graceless self-righteousness. We see this over and over again in the New Testament, but in the letter of Colossians in chapter 2, we see people imposing rules upon the Colossian church, saying, do this, don't do that. And Paul says, that is not life-giving. Don't let others judge you based on what you do, but instead, let them judge you by who you are connected to. 
and that ultimately is Christ, because he says in verse number 20 of chapter 2, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong the world do you submit to its rules? Even among Christians, it's tempting to create rules and regulations and structures that give the appearance of a healthy Christian life, when in fact they may be the exact opposite. They may be window dressing on something that is completely corrupt on the inside. The indicatives Paul shows us in Colossians and in all of his writing, when they are combined with the imperatives, are what produce total life transformation. Before I get into the heart of chapter 3, I want to give an illustration of what I'm talking about from another of Paul's letters. The little letter of Philemon that is often overpassed in the New Testament because it's just one chapter, just a handful of verses, but it is a powerful illustration of this principle at work. In Philemon, we have the Apostle Paul writing to someone named Philemon who owns a slave named Onesimus. And Philemon is upset with Onesimus because Onesimus has abandoned him and left Philemon, and he has left him in a bad situation. In his departure, Onesimus comes across the Apostle Paul, and Paul, as with everyone, shares the gospel, and Onesimus believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he recognizes that this commitment to Christ and dealing with his sin is going to cause him to reconcile with Philemon. So Paul sends him back to Philemon with a letter. And in this letter, Paul is going to make it clear that Onesimus was known for his conversion. Paul gives testament to the fact that he has received Jesus. But now he was going to have the opportunity to prove the character of his conversion by going back to the man who had legal responsibility for him, even ownership of him and his work. And Onesimus would have to face Philemon, not as one who was afraid, but face him in faith because of the gospel. You see, Philemon was also a believer in Jesus Christ, and Paul says in the letter that he was known for his love and his good deeds among the people of God, but now he would have to prove his understanding of the gospel by his acceptance of Philemon, or his acceptance of Onesimus. Both of these men, Onesimus and Philemon, would have an opportunity to show that the internal truths of the gospel, the indicatives that they understood about Christ, would now come out in the imperatives, in the ways that they lived before God, one another, and the church that was among them. Paul called both of these men to act on what they knew about the gospel and to reconcile their lives to one another because they had been transformed by Jesus. We don't have the conclusion to the story of Philemon's uh, and Onesimus in the letter of Philemon. I believe we can trust that these men were reconciled and that God was glorified in their relationship, but it gives a great example of how knowing the gospel changes the way we relate to one another, and it leads us to maturity. After the Apostle Paul establishes the deity of Jesus and his sufficiency in the first half of the letter to the Colossians, he now calls Christians to live lives that are marked by the gospel and growing maturity. And he does this along three major lines. So there are three major points in my outline this morning. And the first is 
that the gospel calls us to set our hearts on heavenly things. The gospel calls us to set our hearts on heavenly things. Beginning in verse number three, Paul says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. This set your hearts on heavenly things is indicating that there's a change in what Paul is writing, and now he is exhorting the believers to live in light of what they know. The word set means to seek or to strive earnestly for something. Paul is exhorting Christians, and the Colossians in particular, to focus their hearts and minds on what is eternal, not just what is temporal or what is before them. In other words, Paul is saying that life in this present world will be better if we live for a purpose beyond the here and now. You see, we live in a world where we're all looking for purpose bigger than ourselves. We all want to be a part of something that we couldn't possibly accomplish alone, but that we can accomplish together. And in the gospel, God brings us into a family of Christians who he calls to reach the nations with the gospel. It's something that no one person could possibly do themselves. Even the apostle Paul, as he traveled the ancient world and made three missionary journeys, he was not alone in his missionary travels. And he was not simply one man against the world, but he was a team of Christians that took the gospel against the darkness of evil. And God in his grace granted enormous fruit that believers were made in the different places that Paul went and churches were established and the glory of God was proclaimed. Paul is reminding the Colossians and by implication he is challenging us to set our hearts above what we see here and now. Even we who live in a time when Christianity seems to be on the decline and when churches seem to be struggling, that does not mean that the gospel message is faltering. Instead, the gospel message continues to grow. Even in our own country, the gospel continues to grow. It just may not be in the places where you are looking. Think of all the immigrants that have come to the United States from other parts of the world. And what is one thing that they bring with them? It is their faith. Christianity and churches are thriving among immigrant communities in the United States to the glory of God. And we should rejoice in this just as they are thriving in other parts of the world, partly as a result of our missionary witness over generations, but also because of God's faithfulness to his own message. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. There is no doubt that was difficult for the Corinthians to do. It's difficult for the Colossians to do, and it is difficult for us to do, because we are all visual, tactile people that are caught up in the world that we experience. And if we let ourselves go there, we can be overwhelmed with the world and we can diminish Christ. But Paul is saying, intentionally set your heart and your mind on Jesus. Focus on Christ because after all, look at where he's located, verse number one. He's seated at the right hand of God. So set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. As we do this, the gospel changes our focus. The gospel changes our focus. It means that we value heaven more than we value earth. 
We value the things of eternity more than we value what we can get now. I've often joked that I'm investing in a mansion in heaven, which is what Paul or John calls it in his gospel when he quotes Jesus, when he says, I am going to a place that you cannot come with me now, but I am preparing for you a mansion. I'm not investing in real estate here and now in the way that I am in eternity, and neither are you, because if you have a relationship with Christ, you will one day live with him in his eternal presence. Some have criticized Christians who focus on heaven more than earth and said, well, people who focus on heaven are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. Yet that raises a false premise because that statement asserts that a person cannot be heavenly minded and produce earthly good. However, history shows over and over again that the earthly minded people accomplish nothing of eternal value, whereas heavenly-minded people do accomplish things of eternal value. Think of all the ways that Christians have given themselves for something beyond their life. Look no further than Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, where it says people were killed for the sake of the gospel, and yet the gospel continued on. It's not that they gave their life meaninglessly and that their lives were a waste but it is to say that their lives were a platform for the gospel to continue. As we change our focus to be on heaven more than earth, God will use us to impact the earth. Think about that. Think about Christians who have gone into difficult places. During the Black Plague, it was Christians who went in knowing that they were taking on a death sentence by treating people who were sick with the plague. Why would they do that? They would do that because they knew that they had eternal life, not just the life before them. Meanwhile, the social elites and the wealthy of that day withdrew from urban and metropolitan areas and took themselves out to estates on farms where they could be withdrawn from people because all they had to live for was their current circumstances and their current wealth and self-preservation. Christians over and over again have given themselves to suffering and to the relief of the poor because we look beyond the temporal and we look at heaven. So the gospel changes our focus as we set our hearts on heavenly things, and it also clarifies our identity. The gospel clarifies our identity. In verse 3, he says, "'For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God.'" This idea is that Paul is teaching that Christians have died to their sins and been given eternal life through Jesus Christ. What seems hidden now will one day be revealed for everyone to see. What seems like weakness now will be shown to be strength later, and what seems to be foolishness presently will be shown to be eternal wisdom." Christ, who is presently sitting at the right hand of God, will one day appear, verse number four, and when he appears, we will be with him. The realities of what we have in Jesus Christ must come to shape the ways we think and feel and make decisions. Having this mindset, this attitude, this disposition, this temperament, this way of thinking and feeling, this way of making decisions reflects that we have a new identity in Jesus And he's given us a focus bigger than ourselves. The Colossian Christians were not naive. 
They lived in a hostile culture that opposed Christianity and among religious people who questioned Christianity and gave alternate understandings of Jesus Christ. It was not easy to be a Christian in Colossae, just as it's not easy to be a Christian today. And the thing that kept the Colossians going was not simply hard work and determination, but what kept them going was knowing of their identity in Jesus. It was knowing that their life was now identified completely in him through his death and resurrection. Life was not about what they could get or control, but life was giving and following Christ. As we seek to set our hearts on heavenly things, we must seek godly values. We must seek godly values. Values are what undergird our belief and practices. They're what shape us and prompt us to do things. Our values inform every part of who we are, whether they're stated values or assumed values. Look at how we spend our time as an example. We spend our time most easily on ourselves. Why is this? Because there is a value that we want what we want and we do what we want. And therefore, we always say we're busy. We didn't have enough time. We've run out of time. We wish we had more time. And why is that? Because we are doing what we want, even though there's a moral sense that says we should be doing something different. As we align our hearts to set our things on heavenly things, it changes our values. It means we don't have to grub for what we can get now, but instead we can invest in what God has for us in the future. And as we set our, our hearts on heavenly things, it will make an impact on other people. And how is that? Well, the second major thing I want you to see this morning is that we must put to death sinful worldly practices. We must put to death sinful worldly practices. That means we must reject vices that the world otherwise celebrates. Vices are described as immoral behaviors and practices. We might call them sins. And Paul lays out for us, beginning in verse number 5 through 11, several vices that define the world shamelessly. The first can be summarized like this. The world worships sexual immorality. The world worships sexual immorality. He says in verse number 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Sexual immorality here, according to Paul, is the byproduct of our evil desires. That is, natural, God-given desires are corrupted by sin. And more specifically, they can become filled with lust. And this lust leads to immorality because it's driven by our greed for more. It literally means that we are craving more or coveting what we do not have. And the object of greed in this particular context is more and better sex. God is replaced by this desire for sexual immorality, and it becomes the driving idol of the heart. Since we're in Genesis, we'll be coming to chapter 18 and 19 in a couple weeks. But in Genesis 18 and 19, we have the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. These two cities that are prideful and arrogant in their resistance of God 
and it led to all kinds of sexual sins. In fact, Sodom and Gomorrah are judged not merely because of their sexual sins, but they are judged because of their pride and rebellion against God, which led to those sexual sins. Those sins were so evil that when God sent angelic messengers to visit Lot, the men of the city tried to woo them sexually. They wanted to take those men, that appear, those angels that appeared to be men, and they wanted to have sexual relations with them. And it was disgusting both to Lot, but it was more disgusting to God. And God decided to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, even before that incident had happened. The judgment would come because of their idolatry of sexuality. And the reason they idolized sexuality is because they had no place in their hearts for God. The gospel, on the other hand, produces sexual purity. Notice in verse number seven, he says, you used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived. In other words, he's saying, Colossian Christians, you also were sexual idolaters, but now you have become God worshipers. And in becoming God worshipers, he's cleaned up your sex lives and your sex desires. A person transformed by the power of the gospel matures in sexual purity consistent with God's design. God created two genders and sexuality, and he declared them good in Genesis. The gospel produces sexual purity that reflects God's goodness. While the world worships sexual immorality, even celebrating sexual deviance, the gospel produces sexual purity and it protects women and children. Another vice of the world that Paul lays out here is that the world multiplies hateful speech. The world multiplies hateful speech. So not only is sexual immorality celebrated and rampant, but mean and coarse language comes to dominate relationships. Look at verse 8. He says, but now you must also rid yourselves of all things such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. As Christians, we are rightly abhorred at sexual sins in our culture, and we're bothered. We're even greatly troubled at the things that are dominating our culture just now, from same-sex marriage to transgenderism and other things. But as Christians, we tend to look the other way on some of these hateful speech patterns that we see laid out in verse number eight. And Paul is saying they're both equally bad. It's not that there are two tiers of sin. One is really bad and one's not so bad. He's saying they're all bad and they all are vices that work against God and reveal what's truly in your heart. The Apostle Paul calls Christians here. Notice he's addressing Christians. He's calling them and calling us to put off hateful speech and to put on a new way of communicating. In our context, social media does not create our anger, our rage, our malice, our slander, or even filthy language. But social media definitely magnifies and amplifies our sinful tendency toward hateful speech, and it further divides us. The gospel, on the other hand, fills our hearts and minds with grace and truth, and it produces godly speech, peace, and unity. 
Think about these different categories that are laid out in verse number eight, the anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language, and lying in verse number nine. All of those are present in all of us because we want to make ourselves look good before others, and we end up doing that by putting other people down. Yet Paul is saying we have a new self. The old self has been taken off with its practices, and we now have a freedom that allows us to be who we truly are in Christ, and that builds other people up. In the context of the church, Christians slandering other Christians does not provide good evidence for the gospel of reconciliation. Congregations that are angry with one another do not provide good evidence for a loving God. Christians who love the Lord and then lie or cheat in order to get ahead or to live extravagant lives do not provide convincing evidence that they believe the gospel of grace makes a difference in their lives. Think about what I'm saying there, that Christians live differently, that God has given us this new understanding of ourselves in Christ, that we have been forgiven, that we have now been hidden in Christ, that our identity is in him. Therefore, it changes the way we talk to one another. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't continue to struggle. The Christians in Colossians were struggling because Paul is calling them back from sexual sin. He's calling them back from verbal sin. And he's saying, live in light of who you are in Jesus because the gospel produces godly speech and it promotes peace and unity among the brothers and sisters. Well, another way that we're called to push back against the world and its values is we are called to seek a unified identity because the world nurtures harmful discord. The world nurtures harmful discord. Look at verse number 10. He says, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. The presence of sin in our lives deforms the image of God in us. We were created in the image of God, and yet because of sin, that image is broken and deformed and distorted. One of the ways that the image of God is deformed in our lives is through division and discord between different groups of people. Yet when the power of the gospel is active in our lives, it transforms everyone into Christ's likeness. So in Christ, all believers, regardless of our external differences, share an equal identity with God. While the world nurtures, nurtures harmful discord, think of ideas like critical race theory that are trying to find all the ways that we're different from one another. The gospel provides or produces a unified identity. It says that Christ is all in all. Everyone who has Christ is equal before Christ. There are not tiers and layers of Christians that the first class Christians are Americans and the second class Christians are everyone else. Not at all. There is one kind of Christian and we are all united in Jesus. So as we put to death the world and its sinful practices, it means we must be pushing back against sexual immorality. We must be pushing back against hateful speech and we must be pushing back against harmful discord. But let me challenge you for a moment. In what ways do you entertain yourself that run 
consistent with the world's values and yet contrary to the fruit of the gospel. Think about all the ways we tolerate and excuse sin in the name of entertainment. We say, well, I really want you to watch this show. Now, let me give you a disclaimer. The language is terrible, but the story is amazing. I think that's one of the ways that we've accepted the value of the world, and Paul is calling us here to put away anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. He's not saying tolerate it. He's saying get rid of it. Or what about when we've watched a certain movie or a certain uh, another TV show, and we'll say, it's a great show. The story really drives it, but there is some sexual stuff that you're probably not going to like. Like there's some homosexual stuff in there that I'm really not too fond of. And yet we are still drawn to the story to the point that we're sharing it with our friends and family, inviting them to watch it. Paul is saying, put it to death. Stop doing it. He's also challenging us to stop dividing ourselves among ourselves by constantly comparing and criticizing other people. We subtly do this as well by judging what kind of car one another drive, what kind of neighborhood we live in, where we send our children to school, how we dress. There are so many different ways that we divide ourselves. And yet Paul is saying Christ is all in all, that that is ultimately what matters. Rather than condemn the world and its evil practices, Paul is condemning Christians who have not yet overcome the world's values and, or vices. And he's challenging us to live in light of Christian virtues, and that leads to the third point. So the first point was set our hearts on heavenly things. The second point was put to death sinful worldly practices, and the third is clothe yourselves with Christ's virtues. Clothe yourselves with Christ's virtues. Beginning in verse number 12, Paul says, as God's chosen people who are holy and dearly loved clothes ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. As Paul is describing our new life in Christ, he's saying the new redeemed self is not primarily defined by what we have put off. Because even non-Christians can resist sexual sin. Even non-Christians can push back against hateful speech. And even non-Christians can push back against unfair divisions. But Paul is saying what non-Christians don't have is they're not God's chosen, holy, and loved people. It is that we need to be defined by our position and relationship with Christ, and that changes the way we live from the inside out. That means as Christians, we become characterized by Jesus rather than by what we do or what we don't do. That's why Paul says at the end of chapter 2, don't let other people judge you based on what you do, but instead find your identity in Jesus. The reason we abstain from certain sins involves our new identity in Christ. We are called to act according to our new God-given identity, and God gives us a new set of desires. He changes us from the inside out and not the other way around. It is through the gospel that God transforms us and changes us. We cannot reform our way to Christ. We cannot make ourselves a Christian. Instead, Christ changing us, changes us by helping us see our sin and our need for his forgiveness. Whenever I was in college, I did lots of different odd jobs between semesters through a temporary agency. 
And it was always interesting to show up to the temp agency and see what assignments they had. And one Christmas, my younger brother and I showed up and they said, we need you to go to this tool and die machine shop out on the edge of town. Sounded fascinating. This shop was Japanese-based uh, company, well-known for robotics, and this was the early 90s, and we were fascinated. We wanted to see the inside of this shop because we had heard about it through some of our friends. Well, as we showed up that day for work, what we didn't realize is they were closed for maintenance. They closed every six months to clean up and to clear out some of the sludge that accumulated as a part of their uh, machining metal into different parts. So as we got oriented and they showed us around, they gave us a tour of some of the machines that were doing the tool and die work. They showed us some of the robots that they made and that they were a part of. And then they showed us the sludge that sort of worked its way through this facility. There was a channel through every aisle of this building that was larger than a warehouse. And that channel had this sludgy brown substance that was flowing toward what we came to call the pit. And they took us to the pit at the end of the tour where there was an 18-wheeler pumper truck that had been working for four hours to pull liquid out of the pit. And they told us, guys, you're going to suit up in hazmat suits and we're going to put you down in that pit and you're going to clean out the sludge that the pumper truck can't get. And my brother and I looked at each other like, this is interesting. Not sure how we feel about it. The pit smelled awful. And they took us to a room where they gave us these suits that I thought were hilarious because they were snow white suits that we put on. We zipped ourselves up. We put on rubber boots and rubber gloves. The suit even had a hood and we had to wear eye protection. And they marched us back out to the pit and they said, Get down in there, guys. Here are some shovels, some squeegees, and some other devices that you're going to use to get all the sludge out. Well, as we did that, my brother and I got filthy. Like, even as we descended the ladder into this pit that was over 15 feet deep, we were getting slimed just in touching the ladder. And the smell got worse the deeper we got in there. No matter how much we worked that day, and it took us several hours of sort of cleaning and working with the pumper truck to get the rest of the oily metal shavings and just grossness out of this pit, all so they could start the process over again for another six months, we were filthy messes by the end of it. Those sparkling white suits that we wore into the pit came out covered in brown yuckiness, like, and it, we smelled as bad as the pit did. But as gross as that was, it didn't change who my brother and I were inside of our suits. Because at the end of our shift, we went back to the place where we changed into those suits and we changed out of those suits. We put off our old clothes, as it were, and we put on our new clothes. And we walked out of there, the same guys that we were, not marred and ruined by being in this nasty pit of sludge. But instead, we were the same Noah and Nathan. As I thought about that analogy, it's similar to what Paul is saying in this passage, that we have been given a new identity in Jesus where we are setting aside our old self and its evil practices, and we are putting on the new self. It's as if we're removing the white hazmat suit that has been completely marred, and he's giving us a new set of clothes, which are new virtues and behaviors. 
When my brother and I were in that pit, there was no way we could clean ourselves. We didn't even bother. Like, what are you going to do? You've got hands that are covered in sludge, and if you try to wipe off your hazmat suit, you're only spreading more sludge. That's exactly the problem of a moralist who's trying to make themselves better by reforming themselves to become a Christian. They're corrupted by sin, and a moralist can do no amount of good works to make themselves cleaner because they're just spreading the sludge more and more. As we receive the gospel, the gospel teaches us to forgive other people. The Christian virtues that we see clearly in this passage start with forgiveness. Paul says that we should bear with each other and forgive one another, and and if any one of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. You see, you're not capable of forgiving one another. I'm not capable of forgiving you. We can only forgive because we have been forgiven. Jesus said the same thing at the end of the Lord's Prayer. He said, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. The idea is we have been forgiven so much in Jesus that we can forgive others their sins. Now, this is not to say that we forget wrongs that are done, And it's not to say that we should minimize the consequences of sin and harm. But it is to say that as we put on the virtue of forgiveness, we are able to love in a way that is undescribable because it's God working in us. When Christians close ourselves with Christ, his virtues become our virtues and we draw closer to Jesus and closer to one another. Genuine forgiveness in this passage, Paul says, produces compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And it enables us to love one another and dwell in perfect unity. Those fruits, those characteristics can only be described by the grace of God. Fruits that last. Now, is that to say that non-Christians cannot be compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, or patient? No, they can be. But in order to make it sustain in the most difficult circumstances in our up-close relationships, it has to be energized by Jesus. So the gospel teaches us to forgive. And then lastly here, it teaches us to worship. The gospel teaches us to worship. Paul concludes this section by saying, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful Well, what is he talking about here? He's talking about a peace and thankfulness that come because of the word of God. He says in 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. As we dwell on God and his word, it produces the fruits of patience and thankfulness. It produces the fruits of worship that we come to God, not only with our heads, but with our hearts. Our heads are focused on information and knowledge, but our hearts come forth with singing, he says here, that we would admonish one another through the wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in our hearts. The evidence of a changed life is not just a changed mind, but a changed heart. And one of the ways you see a changed heart is through singing. Have you ever had a song just stuck in your head? It just seems to come out. You can't stop singing it. That happens to me nearly all the time, and my kids and I joke as we play music in the car that, why'd you pick that song? Now I'm going to have that stuck in my head. 
But think about the song that comes out of your heart and mind, knowing that you've been forgiven in Jesus. And that even though you're in the midst of difficult relationships and in a culture that opposes Christ, you can have the joy of Jesus and it just comes out. I would even pray that some of the songs we've sung today, you'll go home humming and singing because they are the song of your life. And Paul says, as we do this, we do it all in the name of Jesus, who we are here to give glory to. Julius Kim observes this. He said, it is as we learn of God's love for us that our hearts are changed and we are moved to obey him from the inside out. Hear that again. It is as we learn of God's love for us that our hearts are changed and are moved to obey him from the inside out. We cultivate the Christian values of forgiveness and worship not by determination, but because of what is on the inside. It comes out of us. If we have been hidden with Christ, then what will come out is the fruits of righteousness. But if we have nothing to do with Christ and we're simply moral people or self-made or self-righteous, then what will come out is the opposite of all these virtues. We will not be able to maintain kindness and compassion and patience and gentleness and humility, but eventually those will break under the weight of sin, the weight of our own sin, not to mention the sin of others and whom we are in relations with. So we need Jesus. And we need to grow in maturity through gospel transformation. I mentioned Onesimus and Philemon at the beginning, two brothers in Christ who were at odds with one another in other ways because Onesimus was a runaway slave. And yet in the gospel, the indicatives of who they became in Jesus, forgiven sinners, would come to shape who they were in the imperatives that they would live out in a relationship with one another as brothers in the gospel. God is calling us to grow in maturity through the gospel, not just in what we know, but in how we live. And how we live will come from the inside out. So my final question is, what's coming out right now? What's coming out in your life? Are you being overrun and overcome by the world? Or are you pushing back against darkness? Are you pushing back against evil because The glory of Christ is coming through your heart and through your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about this passage, there's so much for us to apply to our lives. And Father, we live in a broken world that resists you as much now as it ever has. A world that hates the name of Jesus, that uses Jesus Christ as a swear word, that invokes the name of God in vain relentlessly. And these are just small signs of, an e- of evil hearts that are overflowing through the mouth of what is inside. God, we feel in our own hearts the pull of the world. We feel the pull of sexual immorality, hate speech, and division just as much as other people do. But we also feel attention because we feel that these things are now wrong. We no longer glory in them. We now struggle with them. So God, I pray that you would help us as we've been hidden in Christ and the gospel, that we've been given this new identity, that you would work that new identity out in us more and more. God, forgive us for being self-righteous and judgmental people. Instead, help us to be the kind of people who are forgiving and who are worshipful as demonstrated through our thanks 
And may all of this bring glory to you as we grow to maturity in Jesus. And we pray, desperately asking you for help. And it's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen.